Maybe you've heard the tragic story of four dead girls, ages 5 to 16, sisters, whose decomposing bodies were found by U.S. Marshals in a Washington, D.C. apartment two to three weeks ago. Their mother was arrested for their murders, and six child welfare workers thus far have been fired, and the investigation continues. Kathy Lopes, a social worker for the Booker T. Washington Public Charter School, went to visit the home of the girls when one of the girls stopped coming to school. She was met at the door by the mother, who refused to allow her in the home. She became suspicious, so she called the Child Protective Services and requested an official investigation. Unfortunately, nothing was done. Mrs. Lopes then called the police, complaining about her frustration that no one would investigate this family. She was transferred from department to department to department, and again, no investigation was done. It was only when U.S. Marshals went to serve eviction notice papers that they discovered the decomposing bodies of the four girls. An estimated 899,000 children were victims of abuse in the United States last year. In 2002, 53,000 children died as a result of homicide worldwide. In the United States, 1,460 children died as a result of either abuse or neglect. Three quarters of these children were under the age of four. Approximately 77% of the deaths were caused by one or both parents. In 1970, one in ten children were born who were born in the United States were born to an unwed mother. That number had risen by 1980 to one in five, and by 1995 to one in three. By 1985, half of all couples who married in the United States lived together prior to marriage, and one half of all marriages, first marriages, end in divorce. Two-thirds of women and three-fourths of men who divorce eventually remarry but the divorce rates for the second marriage is higher than the first. The title for our talk this morning is The Fix for Failing Families. Families are struggling. Families are hurting. Families are in crisis. This morning I want to share with you four practical steps that you can take to bring healing to your families. Step one. First, know God well. His methods, His principles, And I know you might be thinking, oh, here we are, another church service in which we're told to know God. This is what we've heard all the time. This is just a Christian cliche. Well, I'm going to challenge you today that I'm not going to give you a Christian cliche. I'm going to challenge you with the idea that that we may not have really known God well. Do we really know Him? His law of love, as we talked about in our previous service, how that method applies to our life day to day, how we can bring His principles of liberty into our daily living. Do we really believe that God the Father is just like Jesus? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said. Does it really matter? In Romans 1, starting in verse 18, going through verse 31, Paul tells us six times that the problems we have stem from a a particular reason. He tells us six times what the reason is. He says that the, the truth about God has been rejected. They didn't love the truth about God. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They preferred images of, of mortal man, birds, reptiles, and animals to the truth about God. And then he tells us that the mind becomes darkened. The mind becomes foolish. The mind becomes depraved. And then he goes in verse 
28 to 31, he says, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what not ought to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. The mind cannot be healed without knowing God. Our families cannot be healed without knowing God. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 talking about the end days, talking about the time just prior to Christ's coming, talking about the the last stage in earth's history, the time where we live today. He says, but mark this and mark this well. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Notice these people with all these horrible traits, these are not the agnostics, these are not the atheists. These are not the rejecters of the idea of God. These are the religious people. These are the people who have a form of godliness but deny the power because we've accepted false ideas about God into our beliefs, into our teachings, into our hearts. We have forgotten God, not the idea of God, but the truth about God. And thus, science has actually shown extrinsic religiosity, people who have religious practices but don't have intrinsic spirituality have higher rates of child abuse. Extrinsic religiosity without intrinsic religion or spiritual development increases the risks of child abuse. Whereas intrinsic religiosity, the people who actually know God in their hearts as their friend, child abuse goes down. 2,000 years ago, there was a group of Adventists looking for the first advent of Christ. They were health-conscious, Sabbath-keeping, tithe-paying, creator-God-believing, a church-attending, sanctuary, sacred people. But they believed so many lies about God that when He came and stood among them, they hated Him and they killed Him. They didn't know God. They accepted the idea of God, but they didn't like God when He came and stood among them. Jesus said, at the end of time, they will come to me in that day and they will say, Lord, Lord, we have prophesied in your name. We have cast out demons in your name. We have performed many miracles in your name. Notice, they're not doing this in the name of Buddha or Hare Krishna or Muhammad. They're doing this in the name of Jesus. These are Christians. And he says, get thee hence, ye workers of iniquity. I have never known you. We have a form of godliness, but we deny the power because we've accepted lies about God himself into our belief system. We have accepted a false view of God, which is destroying our minds, destroying our characters, and destroying our families. It happened in Christ's day. Scientific research is showing that when we have religiosity without knowing God, we destroy our families today. And Christ prophesied it would happen at the end of time. It is by beholding God that we are changed, coming to know Him as He really is. But it's by connecting to Him that we experience the transfusion of His Spirit, reconnecting to Him that we are recreated in Christ's likeness. 
life eternal, John 17, 3. This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ and now and sent. Not knowing about you. You see, how many of us know about George Bush or Bill Clinton? Maybe more than we'd like. But how many of us know them? All too often, we satisfy ourselves with knowing about God rather than actually knowing Him. Our families cannot be healed if we don't know God. I want to challenge you to come to the rest of our programs. In Demolishing Satan's Strongholds, we will be exploring specific things that get into our teaching and into our minds that actually obstruct our ability to know God. On the seven myths of forgiveness, we will explore more teachings that get into our, our mind about God that obstruct our ability to know God. Come to our programs and understand how we can know God better. Step one, know God well. Step two, deal with your own selves first. Step two, deal with your own selves first. Healthy relationships require healthy people, and healthy people are in governance of themselves. Healthy relationships require healthy people, and healthy people are in governance of themselves. Kevin came to see me tearful, anxious, depressed. He wasn't sleeping, wasn't eating, couldn't focus. His marriage of seven years was falling apart. His wife told him if he didn't get help, she was leaving. He described a marriage in which he worked approximately 60 hours a week, and as soon as he got home, he would go straight to his television and turn the TV on and sit there the rest of the evening watching TV. He reported that his wife didn't work, but when he came home, the house wasn't clean, meals weren't cooked, dishes weren't picked up, uh, and, and they argued. He described argument after argument in which he or one of them would complain and the other would have a retaliatory complaint back. We explored the principles that healthy relationships require healthy people, and healthy people are in governance of themselves. He had authority to change himself. He did not have authority to change his wife. And so he began to make changes in himself. He started to come home a little earlier. When he came home, he didn't rush right to the TV. He took a little time to talk to his wife. He actually began helping around the house, cleaning up some of the dishes in the kitchen. Occasionally, he'd bring a card or leave a note telling his wife that he loved her, speaking kind words, not arguing and demeaning and cutting her down. He stopped using his energies to try to impose change on her, but instead used his energies to deal with his own self first. And soon he noticed a change. When he came home, his wife was smiling. The house began to be clean. Meals started to be cooked. They began to enjoy spending time together again. Step, step two, deal with our own selves first. Healthy relationships require healthy people, and healthy people are in governance of themselves. We must learn to deal with our own selves first. Because healthy relationships require healthy people, and healthy people own their own shortcomings. Healthy people own their own shortcomings. Stop trying to blame our spouses. We must stop trying to blame our spouses, our children, and our parents for our problems. As soon as Adam sinned, he ran and hid. And as God came to speak to him, Adam said, it wasn't me. It was that woman you gave me. If she wouldn't have brought me the fruit, I would have never taken it. It wasn't my fault. It was hers. Go get her. Don't, get, don't talk to me. And we've been playing the blame game with each other ever since. During marital counseling, Sue and Bill, with Sue and Bill, Sue disclosed that she had gained over 100 pounds during the course of their marriage. And then she complained bitterly, angrily, aggressively that her husband no longer found her physically attractive. I asked her, when you get out of the shower in the morning and look in the mirror, what is your assessment of what you see? 
And she said, it's gross, it's ugly, I hate it. I said, well, why would you expect him to find it any different? <laughs> and then I asked her, does he come home to you after work? Well, yes. Does he go out to dinner, to movies, to, to activities? Does he go to church with you every day? Does he spend time talking with you? Well, yes. So you're telling me he still enjoys being with you and spending time with you. She had put off her own dissatisfaction with herself on her husband and blamed him rather than dealing with her own self first. And in losing sight of her own self, she actually lost sight of the fact that her husband still loved her. Deal with their own selves first. Healthy relationships require healthy people. Healthy people are in governance of themselves and are able to own their own shortcomings. We must deal with our own self first because healthy relationships require healthy people and healthy people communicate well. Healthy people communicate well. We must create an atmosphere where it is safe to speak in our homes, safe to express ourselves, safe to, to have a difference of opinion without retaliation, without fear of reprisal. I mean, just think about it. If you have somebody that you love, and in their heart they've got a problem with you, they're angry with you, they're frustrated with you, they've got something in their mind that, that causes them to be at odds with you, would you prefer that person to keep it in and not talk to you about it? Or would you prefer that person come and tell you? Why would you want them to come? So that you can work it out. We must create an atmosphere where it is safe to come, where it is safe to talk, where they, no matter what they express, they won't be retaliated against, that they will be affirmed. And so I'm going to give you four steps for communication, four steps that can help improve communication in your home. Step one, first seek to understand before seeking to be understood. First seek to understand before seeking to be understood. If somebody in your family comes to you, a child, a parent, a, a, a spouse, with a problem, with an accusation, with an allegation, before defending yourself, before coming, becoming bighorn sheep, you know, bam, bam. You know the bighorn sheep, they just ram each other. Before becoming battering rams with your, with your spouse, seek to understand before defending yourself and being seek to understood. You said, well, well sweetheart, can, can you tell me where, where you came to understand it? How was it you, you thought that? Oh, I can see you're really upset, but could you share with me what, what your concern is all about, how that idea got into your mind? First, seek to understand before seeking to be understood. Step two, after you understand, after it's been expressed to you, after you hear what the other person's concern are, affirm, thank and identify with. In your mind's eye, envision uh, going and putting your arm, your, your words or your arm around them and, and siding up with them. Instead of being the bighorn sheep at odds and opposing them, you want to put yourself on their team, be on their side. And so whatever it is they express, you thank them. Thank you so much for telling me. It means so much to me that you came to me and talked to me. Uh, I, and when, when you understand what it is, tell them. And no wonder you're upset. Uh, I would be upset if, if, also if I thought that was what was going on. Affirm their concern. Identify with their position. doesn't mean you agree with it. It means you understand and, what, and, and can appreciate what they're struggling with. And step three, after you've understood, after you've affirmed, after you've put yourself on their team, clarify, correct, and explain. Well, sweetheart, I can see you're really upset. Would you, would you just take a minute and explain to me how it is you, you've come to this conclusion? Oh, well, no wonder you're upset. I would be upset too if I thought that's what was going on. Uh, but I've got some good news for you. Uh, there's been a misunderstanding. Can, can I share with you what the actual facts are? And you clarify and correct. 
rather than immediately say, you're wrong. And step four, if in fact the concern is a shortcoming on your part, is a mistake that you've made, is some error in judgment on your part, own your mistake. Own your shortcoming and apologize and ask for forgiveness. Ron was in his early 30s, married for five years to his only wife. For more than half of his marriage, he had been deployed with his National Guard unit to Iraq. He had been in combat and seen numerous deaths of Iraqi citizens and insurgents, as well as death of some of his own uh, unit members and, and wounded members of his own unit. And since he'd gotten back, he'd been struggling to come to terms with all the trauma and pain and death that he'd seen. His marriage was strained. His wife complained that he didn't love her anymore. And he would disagree. That's not true. I do love you. But they would argue back and forth. No, you don't. Yes, I do. Ron came to see me and he learned to use the tools of communication that we've described here today. And he went home and when his wife alleged that he didn't love, he said, could you help me understand why you think that? Instead of battering back, yes, I do, he stopped to seek to understand. Tell me why you think that. And she began to describe how he was distant, how he wasn't affectionate and warm, how he always seemed on edge, tense, couldn't relax, never seemed to smile, wasn't happy anymore around her. Now he understood. I think you understand as well. And now that he understood, he identified with her, thanked her. Thank you for sharing that with me. I understand where you're coming from. I know how hard it is for you. Let me, let me share something with you. I'm struggling to come to terms with some very painful things that happened to me in my rack. My love for you has not changed, but something has changed in me. And she, when she understood him, began to support and encourage him. She no longer was afraid that he didn't love her. Her fear had been taken away by the truth, and she was now on his side supporting him as they move forward. Healthy relationships require healthy people, and healthy people are in governance of themselves, own their own shortcomings, and communicate well. Healthy families require healthy parents. Healthy families require healthy parents, and healthy parents are in governance of themselves. Roger was frustrated, fed up, overwhelmed. At the end of his rope, when he came to see me, he had, he had two teenage sons, and every day he came home, they would fight, they would argue. See, he would give them assignments, chores that they needed to get done before, before the end of the day, and he would come home, and, and they would be playing on their, on their Xbox, they'd be watching TV, they'd be out doing something, and their chores wouldn't be done, and he would blow up, he would scream, he would holler, he would curse, he would get red in the face, and they would argue, and nothing ever seemed to change. He felt helpless, he felt powerless in his own home. Roger had forgotten where his real authority rested in governance of himself. He had forgotten he could not directly control the behavior of his sons, and thus he lost control of himself, trying to impose control on another. Healthy parents are in governance of themselves. We explored his authority was over himself, and he began to change himself. When he came home and the chores weren't done, he first sought to understand before seeking to be understood. He went and talked to his sons, asked them what was going on, what their day was like, what they were struggling with, began to spend time with his sons rather than scream at his sons. And when it was appropriate, when it was appropriate, he would express to his sons his sadness that they had chosen to give up the Xbox or the TV 
or the cell phone or the car or the iPod or some other privilege that comes with maturity by their failure to do their responsibilities. Instead of arguing, he identified with the pain that they would be suffering when they lost their privilege. (laughs) Healthy families require healthy parents, and healthy parents are in governance of themselves. Healthy families require healthy parents, and healthy parents remember their responsibilities. Healthy parents remember their responsibilities. This is not just the things they're responsible for, but it's also remembering what they're not responsible for. Parents are not responsible. I'm going to blow your mind. Parents are not responsible for the outcome of their children's lives. Many parents come to see me guilt-ridden because they have a child that they've raised, and that child has grown up to leave the reservation. The child has grown up to go into wild living, to uh, shack up, to do alcohol, to do drugs. That child has grown up and, and done criminal activities and ended up in prison, and that parent feels guilt-ridden. If I would have done my job right, my child wouldn't be having these problems. I am responsible. And then they look back over the course of their lives. Well, maybe, maybe if I would have sent them to this school instead of that school. Maybe if I wouldn't have worked two jobs and just worked one job. Maybe if I'd have done this or done that. And the parent takes responsibility for the outcome of their children's lives. Parents are not responsible for the outcome. Parents are responsible for their conduct in parenting. Parents are responsible for their conduct in parenting not for the outcome. How do we know? Well, many of my patients are struggling with the proverb, the proverb that says, raise a child, you know it, raise a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And see, that proverb has been a curse and a bane on parents for generations because it's been mistranslated. It's been mistranslated. The, the accurate translation for the proverb is, raise a child according to his way, and when he is old, He will not depart from it. And it means let the child dictate the terms of its rearing. Let the child decide whether it goes to school or doesn't go to school, what foods it eats, whether whether the child uh, plays with games or or doesn't play with games, when its curfew is, when it comes home, etc., etc., etc. Let the child dictate the terms of its rearing, and you can be sure when that child grows into adulthood, it will not become a self-governed, self-disciplined adult, but will remain a a self-indulgent adult throughout their life. This is not a promise for good. It's a guarantee for, for evil. How do we know? How can we know which way it is? Well, we need evidence to be sure. How about when parenting is perfect, when there is absolutely no mistake in parenting, not even in the minutest little detail, as in God parenting Lucifer or God parenting Adam? Did God get a guaranteed good outcome? No. So even when parenting is perfect, children can rebel and go astray. Parents are not responsible for outcomes. Parents are responsible for their conduct in parenting. Parents are not responsible for being their child's friend, buddy, or getting their child's approval. Parents are responsible for doing what's in the best interest of their child, regardless of how the child feels. Parents are responsible for doing what's in the best interest of their child, regardless of how the child feels. Imagine, parents, when you took your children to get vaccines. Just, just walk through that experience with me for a moment. Child is 12, 14 months of age, and you've got to sit there and hold the child as the doctor or the nurse injects vaccines into the child's thighs. What might the child be thinking? 
Mommy, don't you love me? Mommy, don't you care about me? How could you let them, let this, let them do this to me? If you were making your decisions based on how it feels and what the child thinks, would we actually give them the vaccines? No. We do what's in the best interest of the child regardless of what the child thinks. And by the way, the whole vaccine thing is a metaphor from when you're going through painful times in your life. Have you ever had times when something painful is happening to you? And, and we pray to God, God, I thought you cared about me. I thought you, were, I thought you were there to look at me. How could you be doing this? Don't you love me, God? And God is looking down and said, it's because I love you that I'm allowing this to happen to you. I'm preparing you for something greater. I'm protecting you for something in the future. Just like that child, I can tell you, I'm sure I cried and wailed when I got my vaccines. But I thank my mother today. She gave them to me. And sometimes we're in a painful circumstance. Thank God for whatever you're going through because he's preparing you for something bigger. John couldn't understand why his son was always in trouble. Truancy, vandalism, marijuana, shoplifting... But John described a lifelong inability to set boundaries with his son and discipline his son for fear of what his son might think of him. John said that all he ever wanted for his son was for his son to love him and value him and appreciate him. And so John couldn't tolerate it if his son were mad at him. So he never disciplined his son, at least not without asking his son permission. You won't be mad, Daddy, if he puts you in time out, will you? Healthy parents do what's in the best interest of their child, do what's right because it is right, not because the child will approve. Healthy families require healthy parents, and healthy parents are in governance of themselves and remember their responsibilities. Healthy, parents, healthy families require healthy parents, and healthy parents are united in love, are united in love. Don't allow the children to split your family. Don't allow parental units. Don't allow the children to split you. This requires that you communicate well, spouses, that you get together, you talk, you, you share your values, you have a common vision, that you, that you understand your, your, your uh, principles and values on discipline. And spouses, if, if your spouse makes a mistake with your child, if you walk in and your spouse is disciplining a child and you know it's because of a misunderstanding, if it can't be cleared up, just with an easy sharing of information at that point. Don't correct your spouse in front of your child. Don't discipline your spouse in front of your child. Call your spouse aside. Hey, can I speak with you just for a moment? Share the clarifying information in private and then allow the spouse who was making the mistake to go back. Allow the parent who was making the mistake to go back to the child, correct themselves, and apologize to the child. Sheila was 35 years of... 35 years of age and came to see me, anxious, depressed, overwhelmed, stressed, sleep problems, inability to focus at work. She was married to her second husband and had two teenage sons living in the home from her first marriage. She described how her son would discipline, how her husband would discipline her sons and how she would object in front of the boys and tell the boys they didn't have to listen. She would stand behind him and shake her head as he's telling him to do something. She would stand behind and go and roll her eyes as her husband Rolled her eyes as her husband was uh, disciplining the boys. There was constant turmoil in this home. Constant fighting, constant arguing, constant raising of the voice, constant shouting. She came to see me and she learned that healthy families require healthy parents and healthy parents are united, united in love. She went home and she apologized to her husband. She confessed to her husband that she had not been supporting him. 
and she began to support her husband. It was almost an immediate change in her husband's attitude. His level of stress, anxiety, tension, and desperation to be in control dropped precipitously. And he began to be able to speak in quieter and more reserved tones, knowing his wife had his back. And very quickly, when the boys realized that mom was supporting dad, their behavior changed. The arguments and the stress in the family resolved. Parents, you must remember that you represent the Godhead. If you were here for our previous service, we talked about that angel in heaven who was deceived by Lucifer and how that angel in heaven didn't have any historic evidence to look back onto, couldn't look at the history of Lucifer's life and the history of God's existence and couldn't look to that and draw any data on who was telling the truth when Lucifer began to lie because Lucifer had done nothing wrong up until that point. And so God began to give evidence to reveal the truth. In this confusion, as the angelic host was, was, was waging back and forth, is God telling the truth? Is, 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 is Lucifer telling the truth? Who should we believe? God said, let there be light. Let the firmament come forth. Let the herb-bearing trees come forth. And on day six, he said, let us make man in our image. Let them be fruitful and multiply in a world before sin. And as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come into the unity of love and give of themselves to bring forth new beings in their image, he created a special cool new creation, two separate individuals coming together in the unity of love, giving of themselves to bring forth new beings in their image. And imagine if Adam and Eve would have done what God told them to do, be fruitful and multiply in the world without sin. The angelic host looking in, what would they have learned? What Adam and Eve had been bringing children into the world to enslave, to abuse, to lord over, to dominate, to command worship from? Or would Adam and Eve have been giving of themselves constantly for the health, welfare, and good of their children? And the angels would have looked in and said, oh, I get it. Uh, God didn't create us to wait on him. He's giving of himself constantly for our good. And the lies of Satan would have been exposed. We represent the Godhead, the parental unit. Satan split the Godhead. Not the Godhead literally, but in the minds of people. He tells lies so that we have a split in our mind and we don't see the Godhead unified. How do we do that? Oh, let's, let's say, do we ever believe that there's one member of the Godhead who is loving and kind and gracious and gave his life for us? And there's another member of the Godhead who is a stern disciplinarian who is a just taskmaster who requires appeasement and payment uh, and, the, and the loving one has given his blood and pleads to the stern one to, to be kind and gracious and forgiving to us. Do we ever have a split like that in our mind? Or do we see what Jesus said? You've seen me. You've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Do we allow that split to occur in our families? So the children experience one parent as the the one that cares about them and loves them and supports them and protects them from the other one. And if they've done something wrong, they go to the one parent to be protected from the other parent. We must be unified in the unity of love. Parents, love your children And parents, discipline your children in love. Healthy families require healthy parents. And healthy parents are in governance of themselves. Remember their responsibilities and are united in love. Healthy healthy families require healthy parents. And healthy parents set healthy boundaries and enforce the boundaries they set. Healthy parents set healthy boundaries and enforce the boundaries they set. Never set a boundary with your children you are not willing to enforce. Why? Well, I want you to imagine that you have a child who's in first grade, and you tell that child, 
that if they study really, really hard and get 100% on their spelling bee, that you will give them $5. And they study all week, study all week. They go get their test. They come back all excited, 100%. And you don't give them the $5. What do you teach your child? Exactly, that you cannot be trusted. They cannot trust you. You don't keep your word. Now, you tell your child, pick up your room, put away your toys. If you don't pick up your room, if you don't put away your toys, you can't have dessert with the rest of the family after dinner tonight. And they don't pick up the room. They don't put away their toys. And then when dessert time comes, everybody's getting dessert, and this child begins to cry and whine bitterly. And you give them the dessert. What do you teach them? That you cannot be trusted. That you don't keep your word. Never set a boundary that you're not willing to enforce. Boundaries bring security, bring safety, bring a sense of contentment, reduce our fear. Uh, Those of you who've had infants know when the infant comes into the world, if you just set the infant down in his crib and just lay a blanket over the infant, that infant will not settle down, will it? That infant will cry and kick and be uncomfortable. But if you take and wrap the infant tight, a tight boundary, the infant feels safe and secure. It will struggle for a moment and then settle off to sleep feeling safe and secure. As the children grow, they grow from the blanket to the arms of the parent. That safety, security, they feel safe and secure and they can grow. And as they they grow further, it's the presence. They'll run and they'll play and they'll come back and touch mom or dad in their presence. And as they grow, it's the rules that you set. And the same rule that says to the child, you cannot go out on the street, you must stay in the yard, in the child's mind says, well, if I can't go out in the street, then the street can't come into the yard and harm me. That boundary, psychologically for the child, gives them safety, gives them security. But if you're inconsistent, if you don't keep your word, if you set a boundary but don't don't enforce it, then they, they don't have that safety. They're anxious, they're nervous, they're afraid, and they begin acting out looking for that structure to provide safety and security. Children, any children in the room, I'm going to give you a secret, big secret. Parents, your parents have as their number one goal for you, or at least one of their main goals, yeah, I think number one, to raise you in such a way that one of these days they can quit parenting you. (laughs) Am I right? Think about that. They want to raise you in such a way that one day you will take over the governance of yourself in healthy, constructive, and Christ-like ways. Which means, young people, if you want more freedoms, if you want more responsibilities, if you want the, the boundaries to move back, then all you have to do is begin keeping every responsibility you have without being told. Clean your room without being told. Do your homework and make good grades. Be where you're supposed to be without being told. Meet all of your responsibilities consistently, reliably, predictably, and your parents will give you more. Conversely, if you don't meet your responsibilities, you don't make your grades, you're not where you're supposed to be, you never clean up your room, you never do your chores, then your parents will begin taking away freedoms because you're telling them that you can't handle the freedoms you have. Step one. Step one in our, in our fix for failing families, know God well. Step two, deal with your own self first. Step three, have a vision. Have a vision for yourself a vision for your family, a godly vision, an eternal vision, a vision to be like Jesus, to be the healthiest, most Christ-like husband, wife, parent, or child through God's grace you can be. 
Have a vision, parents. Have a vision for your children. A vision to see them become like Jesus in character. Set this as your number one goal using your influence to help them develop Christ-like character. Number one goal is not getting money, not getting A's, not getting the first of the class, not being valedictorian, not getting blue ribbons, not getting gold medals. This is not our number one goal. Our number one goal is to help our children develop Christ-like character. 1997 Sports Illustrated published a a study that they did on Olympic athletes, 198 Olympic sprinters, swimmers, powerlifters, and other athletes answered two questions. First question, you are offered a banned performance-enhancing substance with two guarantees. One, you will not be caught. And two, you will win gold medal in your competition. Would you take it? 195 out of the 198 said yes. Our number one goal, Christ-like character, not gold medals. Question number two, you are offered a banned performing enhancing substance with three guarantees. One, you will not be caught. Two, you will win every competition for the next five years. And three, you will die from the side effects. Would you take it? More than half said yes. Parents, we have a problem in our society. It is too easy to take our eyes and our focus and our vision off of Christ. Set our goals and our vision on earthly visions, getting good grades, first in contests, winning at all costs, self-promotion, self-exaltation, self at the center. Make Christ's likeness your number one goal. Step one, know God well. Step two, Deal with your own self first. Step three, have a vision, a godly vision. Step four, create an umbrella of love and live under it. See everything through the eyes of love. Let love be the filter that you judge your family and friends and others. Larry Hansen is a member of my Sabbath school class. And he shared some valuable wisdom a a while back that I want to share with you. In class one day, he said, my wife's not perfect, but I know she wants to be. I know she loves me so much. It's in her heart to be the perfect wife, to never make a mistake. And then when, and because I know that when she does, I know that she is already heartbroken over the mistake before I am even aware of the mistake. And therefore, because I know that, I never upset with her with her mistakes. I treat her with grace. And and I'm not perfect, but I want to be the perfect husband for her because I love her so much. I never want to make mistakes. I never want to let her down. And, And when I do, I'm already heartbroken before she even knows. And because of that, she treats me with grace. How do you experience the members of your family? Imagine being on a ball team, softball team. And on your softball team, there's a player who is constantly dropping the ball, dropping the pop-ups, letting the grounders go through their, their glove and missing it. And you believe, it's your judgment, that they are doing it on purpose, that they're throwing the game on purpose. What is your attitude towards that player? Conversely, there's another player on the team who is also frequently missing the ball, dropping the pop-ups, letting the grounders go through their legs. But your judgment is this player 
passionately wants to do their best. With all their heart, they're trying to do their best, but they're a little clumsy. They're a little awkward. But when they miss one, you see the pain in their eyes. You know that they would, they would give their blood to, to support the team because their heart breaks over letting the team down. How do you experience that person when they make a mistake? Do you have the same attitude in both places? Or are you willing to take that person aside and say, hey, can I work with you? Can I help you? Can we do some practice? When people make mistakes in your family, how do you experience them? As purposely throwing the game? As working against you? Or do you experience them as wanting to do their best? They're heartbreaking when they let you down. And do you work and treat them with love and grace, seeking to help them to grow and overcome? Step one, know God well. Step two, deal with your own selves first. Step three, have a vision, a godly vision. And step four, live under the umbrella of love. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you have been reaching out to us ever since the moment our first parents broke the circle of love and fell into sin that you've been reaching to heal, to restore, to regenerate, to recreate, to restore us back into unity and oneness with you. We open our hearts and minds now. We ask that your spirit be poured out, pouring your love into our hearts, healing our pain, healing our wounds, enlightening our minds, and empowering us to live victorious, Christ-like, loving lives, representing you, bringing healing to ourselves, healing to our marriages, healing to our homes, and healing to our church. We pray in your holy name. Amen.